Well, good morning, Redeemer. How are we today? Good. My name is uh, John, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new, this is your first Sunday with us, just want you to know that we just started a series on the letters from Paul written from prison, and we're in Ephesians. And if you haven't done so yet, I would highly, highly recommend that you listen to the message last week that Mike Bellamy brought. It was timely, it was compelling, and it was concise. And it was a great reminder of what God has done for us in Jesus and what that means for you. This morning, I get to pick up where he left off. And one of the things that we celebrate here in the church is that we believe that God is alive and that he's active and that he's well. And if you believe me, say amen. Amen. It's a dynamic relationship with him, not a static relationship with him. He speaks, he moves, he nudges, he leads, he directs, he adjusts in real time. And as I was praying this morning, even here as I came to the service, the Lord nudged me and I felt like he encouraged me from the jump to say two things. One, I'm gonna say um, just by this way and the other one, I'm gonna pray it over us. Sometimes the Lord speaks and communicates things in which you're not even sure if you want to say it, and this morning is one of those. Because as I was praying for you this morning, I just felt like the Lord said, there's somebody in here this morning that does not want to be here. I don't know why you're here. I don't know if you came here with a friend or a family member or if you came here by yourself. But you don't want to be here you're planning on not listening, and you're really excited for this just to be over so that you can go back home and do whatever. And I just believe the Lord wants me to tell you to listen. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I do know this, somebody does, and he's very aware of your situation, and he nudged a pastor named John to make sure you were paying attention this morning. The next thing I want to do is just pray. So if you can, just bow with me. Father, I just thank you that this morning we come to celebrate you and what you've done. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. And Lord, you tell us in your, your word of truth that every time the Bible's opened, every time it's discussed, every time that it's shared, every time that it's taught or preached, it's like a farmer who sows seed. And some seed, when it hits the ground, it's immediately snatched up by the enemy. Some seed, when it's sowed, it takes immediate root, but then because there's not a depth of root, it dies. Some seed grows, but then is choked out later by the cares of the world, and then some seed produces fruit a hundredfold. Lord, that is going to happen this morning. The seed is going to be sown and has been sown, and I pray that you would help us to pay attention and to listen. Help us not to be like any of the first three, but give us hearts that are open and willing to hear whatever it is that you would have us to hear. And I pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You ever had one of those moments where you come to this conclusion and 
you typically, we typically say the same thing, this isn't working. It could be in your personal finances, it could be in your relationships at home. I'm not talking about little things like your dishwasher doesn't work. I'm talking about significant things. Life at work, life at home, checkbooks, dreams that maybe you once had or goals that you wanted to achieve, habits that you wanted to acquire, and after repeated efforts and after trying to do this thing differently and then that thing just a little bit differently, you come to the conclusion and you say, everybody said this, isn't working. <laughs> I think for many of us, it can be easier to kind of stay in familiar discomfort than it is to experience uncomfortable freedom at times. It's easier for us to say that because we just don't know if this time might be like the other times where we might find ourselves saying once again, this isn't working. I remember one of my children came to me at one point. They will remain nameless for this story. But they came to me and they said, hey, Dad, you used to be jacked. I was like, this isn't working. And he said, I want to be jacked too. Can you come up with a plan and help me? I said, sure, that's fine. That's fine. So I gave my child who I raise and pay for a plan to hit the gym. And he came back to me a couple days later and he was like, this isn't working. <laughs> and I sat there, I said, you've only done it for four days, man. He wanted pecs without the process. So I had to talk to him about process. That there's a process required for things to begin to work that weren't working. And when we come to the scriptures, we have a similar response. Because if you're familiar with the story of God and how it starts, in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man named Abram who would soon become called Abraham and he gives him a promise. And that promise is that through you, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. So you're tracking this promise all throughout scripture. How is this going to happen? All nations, all ethnicities, all language groups, all peoples, brown, black, white, poor, rich, short, tall, skinny, fat, doesn't matter, all peoples, will be united to God, those that are united to Christ will be united to God in one body, one family, and they will all experience this blessing that God promises, namely, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then we know how the story ends in Revelation. We find a tribe, a people of all languages, of all ethnicities, and you see what God promised happening. We know how the story ends. They're worshiping the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. There's no more need for the sun because the glory of Jesus is their light. We, we, see, this, we see this promise fulfilled. People from all nations and tribes and tongues worshiping Jesus. You see, that this helps us understand, especially when we come to Ephesians, that there is, there is a purpose that God has for his people, and you see it in the local church. 
And what is intended to be seen in the local church is a microcosm, if you will, of what will one day happen once God's promises are completely and totally fulfilled. Having come to him individually and now living in him corporately, one of the evidence is to be seen in the absence of hostility in the family of God, the presence of harmony, the breaking down of barriers and building of bridges over all kinds of troubled waters. And in the scriptures, the vision that this lays out is that the local church contains the seeds of a remade world. A new world under Jesus, which means many things, but one of the foremost being that when a non-Jesus-knowing or non-Jesus-loving person comes into the presence of a local church, one of the things that they should be able to see is that it's a trailer, if you will, of what's about to happen. Trailers do one thing. They show us the best parts of the movie that's to come. That when somebody comes into Redeemer Church of Arlington and they look out and they see the way that we are loving and committed to one another, one of the conclusions that they ought to be able to come to is, man, that's what a remade world is going to look like in some way, shape, or fashion. There's just one problem. When you get to Ephesians, there's something that just isn't working. Historically, it has not worked. And it's this relationship. You, you see it here in chapter 2. I want you to see it in the Bible. This is right where Paul starts off at chapter 2, verse 11. This thing that just hasn't worked is this division, this fracturing of relationship between two groups, Jews and Gentiles. There was an absolute barrier between these two groups. I'm going to assume home field advantage, so I won't go into absolute and total detail, but I want to highlight just a few things that I think help us feel the weight of this and why Paul is communicating this. It was an absolute barrier of hostility that existed. And if a Jew married a Gentile, the funeral of that Jew was carried out. It was as if you, as a Jewish man or woman, you were dead to your family. You no longer existed. So absolute was this hostility. Even to go to the house of a Gentile as a Jewish man or woman would make you what they would call ceremonially unclean. It was, in fact, illegal. You couldn't do it. It wasn't even lawful to give help to a Gentile woman giving childbirth because if you did, you would help bring another Gentile child into the world. Every day, Jewish men were taught to pray, and of the many things that they prayed, they typically said two things over and over again, thank God that I'm not a woman, and thank God that I'm not a Gentile. This was in the culture of what it meant to be a Jewish man or a Jewish woman. In Acts chapter 10, verse 28, you have this story where you have this man named Cornelius. He's an Italian. He's a Gentile. And then Peter. And Peter, through circumstances that he could not come up with his own, is invited to Cornelius' house. And when he gets there and he knocks on the door, the very first thing that Peter says to these Gentiles as a Jewish man is, hold on for a second, 
before we go any further, you know and I know how unlawful it is what we are about to do. Does everybody understand that? And yet then he says what I love, but God's told me to come here, so I'm going to obey God other than man. But the very first thing he says when he gets to a Gentile house is that it is illegal and unlawful for me to do what I'm about to do. There was a barrier, people, a massive barrier between Jew and Gentile. And into this division, this fracturing, this reality, Paul writes and he says two primary things. So there's going to be two primary points, and then I'm going to finish with three applications. That's where we're going. If you're with me, say go. Okay, good, you're with me. Super simple, and it's right here. Point number one, Paul urges them to remember who they were. Point number two, Paul implores them to remember who they are in Christ. And then there's three things that I'm, I think that it means for us. Question for you. Do y'all remember what your life was like before you knew Jesus? Can you remember that? What's interesting to me here in Ephesians, this is the first time that Paul's given a command up to this point in this letter. Everything else has been telling us what God has done and what is true about you. His first command is remember. Don't take for granted. Don't get overly familiar. Don't let this escape your memory. Do you remember what it was like before you came to Jesus? What your life was like? I'm grateful that I live 45 minutes away from where I grew up as a young man slash teenager slash college student. I didn't know Jesus then. And so when I go home and I drive certain streets, I pass my high school, I look at the fields where I used to get drunk and get high and go past houses where I used to throw parties and do all kinds of other things. It hurts because I have, I have visions, I have stories, I have those here. And every time I go back home, I'm reminded of who I was before I met Jesus. And it's a good thing. But do, do you remember what life was like before you came to Christ? Could you describe it in a few words? Paul helps us because he gives us five. He gives us five phrases to describe our condition before we came to Jesus. Let me just point them out to you. Number one, he says that you were separated from Jesus. That you had none of what or who is Jesus, and if you were like me, you actually weren't looking for him either. In fact, you were running the other way from him. There was a barrier between you and Jesus. It was a barrier that not only could you not climb over, it was one that you didn't even want to and ran the other way. You were separated from him, severed from him. But Paul goes on to say that not only were we separated, but we were alienated. We didn't belong. 
There was an outside and an inside. We were on the outside. We didn't belong to the people of God, which meant we did not experience, nor did we have access to the blessing that was on the people of God. We were alienated. Not only were we alienated, but we were strangers. We had zero knowledge and zero right to function, to know, to be a part of, to be welcomed into this family of God. We were strangers, outsiders. And because these three things were true, we, we had this fourth reality. There was no hope. You see, if you, if you know the scriptures, the Jewish people always had a destination. There was always a land that they were going to, a promised land, a Messiah that was coming. There was something in the future that you could anchor your hope into knowing that someone and or some way your life, which may not be very satisfying now, one day it will be because of the land that you'll be in and the God that you worship who will rescue and redeem all that has been lost up to this point. Bad news if you're Gentiles, you have no story like that. You have no Messiah. You, you have no land to look forward to. And then Paul wraps it up. Not only are you without hope, but you, you're without God. You're without Yahweh. You're without the one true and worthy of worship God. Alistair Begg says that we could sum this up in five words, that we are Christless, stateless, friendless, godless, and hopeless. That's who we were. Christless, stateless, friendless, godless, hopeless. And I'm glad that Paul begins here because, listen to me, I think that one of the greatest dangers to our faith as believers, it is not fear. I think it's actually familiarity. Like there's a reverence that's lost, a hunger, a, a passion, a fire that's lost when we get really familiar with not only who God is, but what he's done for us. So just think about this. I mean, isn't this so obvious in life? You, you get a new piece of furniture, you get a new couch, and in the beginning it's like, hey, there's a reverence. Don't eat on the couch, bro. Only then to 12 months later, you don't really care so much, even so now you're just flipping the cushions instead of cleaning it. Or that one job that you were so grateful for when you first got it. Now you wake up in the morning and you just, you wish you didn't have it. You really don't even want to go to work. Really familiar. You just got married. And man, when you now used to walk into the room or she now used to walk into the room, you would jump up and you would scream her name and say, it's so nice to see you. And now she comes home and you don't even lift up your face from what you're working on. <laughs> or maybe you had a really powerful encounter with Jesus. And man, it's been like triple devotions a day, morning, lunch, and evening. And you want to orient your entire life around Jesus. Everything has changed. And then you find yourself three months later, like you, you're struggling even to pray to, to the Lord. Like you, you do it because you have to. 
These things often come as a result of us being familiar with the things that should not be familiar with. There's a reverence loss. There's an awe loss. There's, well, really a gratefulness lost. And I think one of the greatest antidotes to familiarity is gratefulness. It's hard to be familiar with something when you're really grateful for it. Because if you're really grateful for it, you typically know why you're grateful for it. And you understand maybe the reasons why you shouldn't experience it, but now you do. And so what does Paul do? do? Hey, in case right now you, you have spiritual amnesia and you've grown familiar with the one person in the universe that you should not have grown familiar with or familiar with a story about your past life that is anything but boring, but completely and totally scandalous, let me remind you once again, don't take it for granted and don't forget it. This is who you once were and there was nothing that you could do about it. You couldn't run, you couldn't build, you couldn't work, you couldn't pray. There was nothing that you had within your capacity as a human being to change your condition that Paul just urged you to remember. Why? At the very least, it's to take us slow and help us be humble people. I think it's to help us with a tremendous and amazing sense of gratefulness because Jesus won for you and did for you what you could not do for yourself. And now, listen to me, now your story and your condition is no longer what we just talked about. But if you follow Paul further in this chapter, there's this phrase that I think is possibly one of the most amazing, powerful, and precious phases, phrases, not phases, phrases in all the scripture, and it's in two words. Sometimes it's seen in three words. I want you to look at it. If you have a pen, underline it, circle it. I don't care what you do. I've got it underlined and circled in my body just so I don't move over this. Number one, chapter two, verse 13. But now, somebody read the next two words. In Christ. So you were... Strangers, aliens, you were without hope, you were without God, but now, because Jesus has brought you near and killed, destroyed the dividing wall of hostility and made you his, now you're somebody who's in Christ. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in what? One body. Verse 21, let's go actually verse 20. Prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, stone, I can't talk this morning, forgive me. Himself being the cornerstone in whom? Who is it talking about? Jesus. And then verse 22, in him. This is who you were, this is who you are. And who you are as a Christ one, as a Christian, is somebody who is anchored in, belongs to, and is united to, somebody, in other words, who's in Christ Jesus. You and Jesus are one. And what I want to do this morning is I actually want to help you see there's a number of things that it means to be in Jesus. But I kind of want to go outside of Ephesians, and I want this to rest on you. If you have a journal or you're taking notes on your phone, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I'm going to name seven things that it means for you to be in Christ. And what I want to encourage you to do now for this week is those things that I say, if you are a Christ one, a Christian, I want you to write the word I in front of and then fill in what I'm about to tell you. 
because there is a great reality and something that we can be grateful for that this is a personal, real, objective thing that it means for you as an individual and us corporately. I want to emphasize the individual. I'm going to emphasize corporately in just a minute. But I think the scripture always argues, this is who God is. This is what God's done. This is who you are. Now this is what you do in that order. So to the extent you actually have your identity in alignment with what the scripture says to you, your actions typically follow. Are you with me? Say yes. Problem is, some of us aren't going to actually or don't actually see ourselves in the same way that I'm about to share with you right now. And that's what Paul's addressing. So this is what it means to be in Jesus. Seven things. Number one. Remember, I, you can write it like this. I have been given grace in Jesus before the ages begin. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. This is what it says. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin. You, Christian, were given grace before the cosmos was even created. Two, I have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter one, verse four. This is what it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Number three, I stand guilt-free and filled with the power from the Holy Spirit to live as I belong to Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. I'll just read the beginning of 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 4. I am loved by God with an inseparable love. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Five, I've been redeemed and forgiven of all sin. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then here's six and seven. Number six, I've been justified before God and the righteousness of God in Christ is now imputed to me. Second Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And lastly, number seven, I've become a new creation, a son and a daughter of God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. That's just seven. You've, given, you've been given grace before the ages began. You've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You stand guilt-free and are filled with power from the Holy Spirit to live as his. 
You are loved by God with an inseparable love. You're redeemed and forgiven of all sin. You're justified before God. And the righteousness that Jesus earned is now credited to your account. And you've become a new creation, a new thing. A son and daughter of God. That's who you are if you are a Christian. And I want to just take a moment here and speak to anybody in the house that would consider themselves not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus. One of the things that Jesus says is taste and see that the Lord is good. And whether or not you would consider yourself a Christ follower or not, here's my contention. I think all of us have a God that we live for, we submit to, we obey. We have rules to follow. You ask where those came from, I don't know. I think that comes, well, I do know. That comes from whatever Lord or God you follow or submit to with your life. There's things to forsake. We call them sins. You may call them bad habits. There are people to avoid. There are goals to be achieved. There's a vision for the good life. Whether that's, we call it without sin and with God and in the new heavens and new earth, the remade heaven and earth, you have some good life that carries with it some desired future. I want to ask you this question this morning. Um, can whatever God you're following, does, does your God offer these things? Success, pleasure, affirmation, status, I don't, I don't know. Did it give you grace before the world was created? Did it choose you before you were even born? Does it forgive you when you fail? Or does it hammer you with shame? You're just not good enough. Try again. Probably not going to make it. Definitely don't feel good right now. You sure you like yourself? Look in the mirror, man. You good with that? Does it forgive you every time you fail? And when you succeed, does it actually satisfy you? Or is it just, look, you're only as good as your last at bat, man. You got to go again. Okay? Does it love you with an inseparable love? Is it devoted to you? Or does it just demand that you be devoted to it? Does it provide justification that you're right in every possible way of the word? You stand in front of the public, you stand in front of someone else. Are there things that you're guilty of? Or does it actually justify you before your God and people? And does it make you new? Are you just the same old? Or does it actually make you a, a new creature? Like you have new desires, new delights. I, I don't know, man. I do know this, that the God I was worshiping and following wasn't like this. And I don't say any of these things to embarrass you, but just to plead with you. This is serious. Don't, don't reject it. At least consider it. Because if it's true, it's the very best thing you could do to actually follow it and explore it. And that's my appeal. 
Don't reject it, but explore it. This is who you are, Christian, and this is who you're growing into. And there's this truth in Scripture that oftentimes people talk about that's this already but not yet. Yes, this is who you are, but there's also these things that are kind of lagging. Yes, you're forgiven from all sin, and yet you still sin. Yes, we're one in Jesus, and yet we still live as though we're not one in Jesus. Yes, you've been justified, and you stand guilt-free, and yet you still struggle with guilt. Yes, that's who you are, and yet your life is catching up to who you already are, so there's a not yet peace. There's a fulfillment that's lacking, which is why Paul talks about in the end of chapter two, in him, like we just talked about, you are also being built together. This is a present continuous action. There's something happening in your life individually and our life corporately. There's something being built. There's growth that's happening. There's an already, but a not yet. And listen to me, when it comes to this issue, there's a lot of them, but when it comes to this issue that Paul is addressing, this racial divide, this ethno-superiority, this me versus you, it's those people and us. When Paul's addressing that, Paul is also talking about, it's true, we are one body, but you're also growing. And when you grow, if you've ever had a growth spurt, you also get what's called growing what? Pains. Growth is uncomfortable. Growth requires us to step out and do things that just hurt. It hurts when you grow. I don't care if that's when you grow vertically. I don't care if that's when you grow horizontally. I don't care if that's when you grow to acquire a new skill, to acquire a new language, to acquire a new habit, to acquire a new job, a business. Growth happens in the discomfort of our lives. If you're with me, say I'm with you. It's uncomfortable to grow. It's uncomfortable to be built into something that we already are not being, that we already were not. And when the pain comes, listen to me, it doesn't mean that it's not working. It actually can mean and often does mean that it is working. You're just going through growing pains. You're being fashioned and built by the master himself into someone and a person, a corporate reality that looks and feels more like him, and it involves discomfort. And it's the same thing throughout the scriptures. Think back with me to Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Peter goes to Cornelius' house. He says, knock, knock, knock. By the way, you know this is illegal. The barrier doesn't allow us to do this, but we're doing it. I'm going to do it anyways because God told me to do it. Peter preaches the gospel, and all of a sudden, once he does it, all the Gentiles in the house get filled with the Spirit, come to Jesus, and it's absolute pandemonium. You can almost see Peter just running. <laughs> he gets to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11. He breaks through the door, and he's like, guys, 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 you have got to listen to what just happened. I just went to Cornelius' house. I preached the gospel, and when I preached the gospel, you would not believe what happened, but every single Gentile in the house came to faith in the same way that we saw all these people come to faith a little earlier. And then the response he gets is, where'd you go? You, you went to Cornelius' house? You, you, you were with the Gentiles? You preached the gospel to the Gentiles? What are you doing? 
This is for us. And it says that they criticized him. Read it in the Bible. Criticized, that's the word. They criticized him and put him down. They snuffed him out. And so Peter's there rejoicing that the gospel has done what Jesus said, by the way. This is not too far after when Jesus said, hey, listen, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, where else? Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They, before, Peter may have been like, hey, fellas, remember what Jesus said? Okay, let's go back there. Now I'm going to tell you this story. He didn't do that. Amnesia, we forget. The gospel now advances into the Gentile family. They're filled with the Spirit of God, and it's met with criticism. And there's this drift that so easily happens in the church and in life. Here's another example of the drift. Peter, who just came and was so enthusiastic about the gospel, advancing into the Gentiles, you get to Galatians, and Peter is showing favoritism to the Jews. And he's doing it at the neglect and expense of the Gentile brothers and sisters. Paul calls him out in front of everybody, publicly calls him out. And he says, you're not walking in step with the gospel. You're not living like who you are in Jesus, Paul. I mean, Peter. He rebukes him. There's this drift. And there can be a drift for us. There often is a drift for all of us, and here's why. The people that we, honestly we, we really like to relate with, they're the easier ones. They're the ones who look like the person who's staring at you in the mirror. That's just easy, man. That's just easy. Let's be honest. It's easier to hang out with people that are like us. Birds of a feather flock together. We get this. We know this. It's easy. It doesn't take that much work. Sometimes it's a little bit more enjoyable because we don't like working that hard. But that's not what we've been saved to, church. That tells the wrong message. It's not good news. And so when this happens, there's admonishment, there's rebuke, because what Jesus has done is he's broken down the barrier that would leave us to hang out and just spend time with people who look like us, because if that happens, we tell the world a message that isn't true, that the gospel is just for these people, not all peoples. But Jesus came for all peoples. Jesus broke the, the, the dividing wall of hostility and the barrier between all peoples and him and all peoples and one another. And so when Jesus comes, this is exactly what he does. He comes and he breaks down these dividing walls of hostility that were so difficult to build bridges over. But now what we find in Christ is there's a greater reality, one that's more powerful, one that's more compelling, one that's more motivating and it's that what we have found ourselves in now, John Piper, I loved it, he said, we've gone to, from bloodlines to bloodline. That in the body of Christ, because of the blood that was spilled in his life, his death, and his resurrection, he's taken people from all tribes and all tongues and all peoples, different bloodlines, and he's united them into one bloodline the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. And when this line extends into all of eternity, 
we will be that one family, that one body. And that one body will be praising and thanking God for everything that he's done, who's turned us and transformed us into who we were, strangers, aliens, exiles, and to now who we are, those people that are in Jesus Christ. And not only is that true, but this is my prayer for us. From bloodlines to bloodline in the body of Jesus, that, that God would so work to gather his people from all kinds of different languages and nations into one family that is defined by the life and death of Jesus, purchased and birthed by Jesus into this new humanity, this new body, this new reality. And second, that all of these bloodlines here united into one would go out and compel the world to a better story. So let's end with application. Three points. Number one, question for you. Do, do you see yourself, do you view yourself, do you frame your life more with me or we? It's a very, I understand, loaded question. But I, I find one of the greatest hindrances to living out this kind of life contained here for us in the New Testament, this vision of this body, like different body parts all under the head of Jesus, this is the metaphor that Paul's using, is that oftentimes we function like dismembered body parts. Like we live our life and we do us without actually having any kind of concept or consideration for the people here in, this, in your local church, my local church. It's why being a member of a local church is so important. Like podcasts aren't for that. You can read books, but you're like a dismembered body somewhere else. That you're, you're, you don't, you're not connected into the very life of a local body that's an expression of what we're talking about here. And oftentimes it's so easy to think of me more than we to think of what I want, what I need, what I deserve, what I don't want as opposed to what we as a body, one body need and ought to be. It's, if you just look at your own body, it makes sense. When you have a cut on your arm, your whole body sends resources to solve the problem. When your arm hurts, everything, you know it hurts. And yet when we live out the very life of Christ, sometimes that's lacking. When someone hurts, we all don't hurt. When someone's rejoicing, we all don't rejoice. When somebody needs something, we all aren't aware of that. I understand there's, there's real practical issues here. Okay, those over here. But is it something that we're, we're longing for, that we're fighting for? There's so many of you in here that do that, and I thank you for that. But it's a question that I want to leave you with. What's the primary frame for you? Is it just me to come to a meeting and listen to a message? Or is it an actual giving and receiving on a consistent basis, day in and day out, so that the body of Christ grows? What is it for you? The second is if you're here this morning and you have an unreconciled issue, a relational dysfunction with someone in the church, may I just exhort you to go work that out? It can be a virus and a cancer, just like an open wound that's not treated well. So if there's an irreconciled issue with you and someone else, please humble yourself, love them, and go 
reconcile. It doesn't do the body life any good or you any good. So reconcile unto Jesus. It's who you are. Third, I want to ask you to pray that you would just pray that God would make us people that are more we than me. (laughs) That are more aware of who we are in Jesus. And that our actions are rooted in that. We don't do it because we have to earn God's approval, but we do it because we have his approval. We don't do it because we need or should earn or have to earn God's love. We already have God's love. So what would it look like if we began to pray more that we could be conduits of that love on a more consistent basis, even if it's just one thing a day or week, but something actively, intentionally, where we're pursuing that. I just want to invite you to pray in that way.